0: This is the funny, The funniest thing in the whole world is when you say, did you see this funny picture on the internet? And then you describe what the picture looked like.
1: Well, let's, that sounds like a great way to start <laughs> was, the show. Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast <laughs> about the books that you've been meaning to read. We're going to get to your stuff uh, that you wrote us. But first, my name is Craig and Andrew has something to tell me.
0: And my name is Andrew and that's not what I had to tell you, but <laughs> somebody tweeted once, oh, <laughs> look, I found this jerk who's always being a jerk to me on Twitter and it was just a picture of an egg. Okay. It's like a like one of those eggs on Twitter. Twitter eggs. Yeah. I bet you were thinking that was gonna be funnier.
1: I no, I <laughs> I find I can I can see I've known you long enough to be able to see in my brain you laughing at that. Mm-hmm. Like that makes me laugh.
0: Okay, so let's let's just hope that all of our listeners are on the same page about like, thinking of me being entertained is enough to entertain them.
1: Yeah, your hand's, like, on your face. You're, like, falling back in your chair. You can't believe bit, that yeah. someone did I, that.
0: I lean back a little bit. Yeah, yeah.
1: Good. And then your cat's <laughs> interrupting you, and you're a little annoyed. Mm-hmm.
0: Yep, hmm Yep. my number. It's
1: a much longer story. Andrew, we're going to talk about A Prayer for Owen Meany by John Irving this okay. week. Uh, it has significantly less gross outs than last week. There's a couple... But not the same. No, no, kid
0: sewer sex. Then, no, that you can remember. That
1: I. Can, it's a long book, but I can't remember <laughs> any explicit mentions of it. But you, my
0: prayer for Owen Meany was that he would not have <laughs> sex with
1: any kids in a sewer. Well, prayers have been answered. Uh yeah. your other prayers were answered. People sent in examples of books that have grossed them out. Some people told us about Stephen King books. Not as many people sent you clowns, which I really wanted. No,
0: I did get one clown gift and it was a pretty good one. <laughs> so like I'm awful. still I'm still accepting scary clown <laughs> gifts if you're sending them. Um yeah, we got we got a few emails. Um one from uh Jane just agreed with us that the Seward Kid Sex Mm-hmm. was gross and she knew the yeah because to to give some context I guess just in case you didn't listen to last week's episode and you don't want to now because <laughs> we you know up part so of much. what's in it um I had a really like visceral reaction like a physical reaction to something that happened in that book and so I asked other people like if they had ever had that happen to them. Um Jane just agreed with us that the sewer kid sex was gross and that when we outlined at the top of the show that we were going to be having a, like devoting a section to grossness that that was what we were going to talk about in it so good good for
1: Oh good. Yeah. <laughs> Jane
0: is very good at that. Um Melissa said um there was a description of a dead woman in um what was it the stand another Ooh. Stephen King book that we did for the show like a million years ago. And and Melissa says that the woman had puke in her mouth and Ugh. King described it in color texture and had to mention it every single blanking time. He mentioned that character again. And she died fairly close to the beginning. I would literally see her name and skip that paragraph because I couldn't take it anymore. And then there was another book Um where somebody like shot somebody with a gun up the butt. No, And she says that was the most disgusted she's ever been from any book that she's ever read. And I love true crime and the Game of Thrones books.
1: Oh, no. Uh, Michael hit us up on Facebook and said uh, that, honestly, misery scared him the most because it's actually the most based in reality of other King's books. And I can imagine, like, if this is what King is doing in the supernatural realm... Like, if he just devoted that energy to just people being messed up.
0: Just imagine, like, he named an entire book Misery. Like, how <laughs> miserable must that be? I know how big a part of It the the It character was, and I don't want to think of an equivalent, like, misery alien that's going around and making that's everybody true. sad. That's true. That
1: book in Cujo is, that dog in Cujo, that book, that dog. Dog in the book. I assume at this point
0: that Stephen King has written a book about an evil book.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I've never read that one about that car. Um, Mm -hmm. Erica wrote that uh, there's a book called The Ruins by Scott Smith. She had to set it aside because she was literally gagging. Great novel, but vines burrowing into open wounds were freaking her out. (laughs) I can see that. Uh See that? Uh huh. And Lena reminded me of a part. In Cormac McCarthy's The Road, where you had a great time with Blood Meridian, so I can just imagine what would happen if you read The Road. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a pregnant woman, and a bunch of men were waiting for her to have the baby. Uh, I think it's because they were cannibals and also like dudes in an apocalyptic, awful wasteland. Um, it said she said it made her want to take a soul shower afterwards, <laughs> okay. which I think is a really good turn of phrase. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple people mentioned on Twitter the book. You know Graham, who recommended it to us, uh, mentioned The House of Leaves, which is I I we will have to read it for the show. It's it's yeah, come up I, a we, number of times. We
0: got this in in our inbox too from Halen. Uh, it said I made the mistake of reading House of Leaves alone in a poorly lit room very late at night. I got to a passage describing the ap- the appearance of a horrific apparition lurking just beyond the protagonist's shoulder that was so terrifying I felt actually paralyzed with fear to the point that I wanted to yell for my mom to come turn the hallway lights on so I could run and hide under the covers but was too afraid to make a sound. Oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> I don't, I don't so want apparently to... this this book is not It's not unscary. Yeah, I though I've I, was, I it, when I saw a House of Leaves the first thing I thought of was like Leaves of Grass <laughs> just like a really. Really scary Walt Whitman poem.
1: I've had House of Leaves described to me, and it freaked me out. I don't really want to talk about it anymore. Okay,
0: so yeah, we're definitely gonna read that one soon.
1: Yeah. So thanks everybody for writing that in. It's always fun when we get like a real uh, heavy mailbag segment to open the show. So. Yeah,
0: I knew I knew we'd get a bunch for like what book grossed you the most. <laughs>
1: Who knew that everyone was reading gross books out there?
0: Yeah, so I mean, we'll we'll still we'll still read those. If you have more, um, send them to overduepod at gmail.com or hit us on Twitter or Facebook at overduepod. And yeah, we might read them on the air, or we might just read them and like text each other about them. Yes, which like you're not party to, but it makes <laughs> it's fun for us.
1: It is fun for us. Uh, Andrew, I spent most of the past week and then some uh, reading this book. So, I actually didn't have a lot of time to learn about John Irving. What do you know about John Irving?
0: Um, I know that he was born John Wallace Blunt Jr. in 1942 and that uh, his first <laughs> novel, <laughs> Jeez. his first novel was Setting Free the Bears, which uh, got decent reviews but didn't sell super well. His first, like, really best selling book. Was the world according to Garp, which was published in 1978, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and um, it uh, it won the paperback version won the National Book Award for fiction okay. in uh, 1980. And the thing that I thought was interesting about that is that the hardcover edition had been nominated and was a finalist the year before, but it lost. Like I didn't know that you got to double dip just by like publishing your book in a different format. Huh. So like if I published a hardcover and an ebook and a paperback all at different times, like would I have three shots and an award is my question.
1: Are audiobooks like eligible?
0: It's like the vinyl release of my audiobook. Ooh. Can that win?
1: Or like And 2000, can it also win a Grammy? Or like <laughs> is there like a media award for someone reading my book in Two Thousand Vines? Mm-hmm. Or, like together. Or
0: when somebody redoes my book all in emoji does that count i have yeah. a lot of questions I about a awards. lot of i feel questions. like you should only get the one shot at it but anyway john <laughs> irving got two shots <laughs> with uh with <laughs> world according to garb which i wanted to read for the show and i was stymied because it was it only comes in like a physical copy instead oh, of Kindle no. copy. that's what happened last time that i looked and i don't want to like touch paper with my hands gross so i haven't read it yet
1: Talk um, about gross out books, dead tree books, am I right? Ugh, ugh. Uh,
0: <laughs> so he was uh, his mother and father separated wh- while his mother was pregnant with him. Mm-hmm. And he didn't ever get to know his biological father during his lifetime, even though his biological father did occasionally come to his wrestling matches in high school without like without John Irving knowing about no. it, which weird, which seems like its own like movie. And I guess in in recent years he's gotten close again with his biological father's family, but my understanding is that they
1: did not meet. I'll okay. I'll just say as a as a as a guy with an estranged dad, can I just say something out there to all the estranged dads out there? Okay, <laughs> like, hit it. Don't just pull that thing where you show up at stuff, or like. Without warning, let people know that you were thinking about showing up at stuff. Yeah,
0: like, what are you, a Gilmore Girls character? Like, don't just do this.
1: You, your world, <laughs> like, your life is not someone else's ABC Family sitcom. Right, right exactly,
0: yes. Even though the, the channel's called Freeform now. Well,
1: I'm not with it anymore, <laughs> okay. okay? But, like, just either f- build that bridge and get across it and fix your fix your stuff— or just like own that you let that ball drop and make some good elsewhere in the world. I
0: know you have this this picture in your mind of like you standing next to a tree watching your kid play baseball while you look all deep in trouble because of the sacrifice that you've made or whatever, but that's not what any real person <laughs> looks like
1: no and if your kid is trying to do a good job at baseball the last he needs is like a strange dad hanging out under a tree like that's
0: why that's why you don't tell him that you're there that's why you just watch silently but like the, a creepo oh
1: god strange dads get your stuff together please stop being estranged
0: just be you dads. really you can't spell estranged without strange and <laughs> that's what i think <laughs> about estranged dads just, just be dads
1: just be good dads please uh, what else about John? <laughs> well, you mentioned the wrestling thing. He's like a champion wrestler or something. Yeah, he wrestled a
0: bunch. Like, and not I think for the WWE. Has... Like, he never no, fought no, no, The no. Undertaker. No, he didn't go to SummerSlam <laughs> and fight, like, John Cena or anything. But... He... He wrestled in high school. That's come up in books a few times. Uh Um, A lot of his books have been adapted into movies or TV shows. Um, He's apparently working on a teleplay treatment of Garp for HBO, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, which is which is in its early stages, which means we may or may not ever actually see it. But it is a thing that like somebody somewhere is working on. Sure. Um, And then there's a really interesting story about him and uh, the Vietnam War, which he did not end up going to. Kennedy in 1963 issued this order saying that if you were the father of a child, and this is quoting um, Irving from an interview, um, if you were the father of a child and that child's necessary means of support, you were not to be drafted into military service. I began officer training in Pittsburgh in 1961. In all probability, I would have gone to Vietnam in 65 after my graduation from university, but I got married and had a child while I was still an undergraduate. My first son was born in March of 65. At the time, I didn't know this would put an end to my becoming an officer in Vietnam, but I went from having a student deferment to having the Kennedy father deferment. I didn't feel lucky at the time. I felt disappointed. I wanted to be a writer. Therefore, I wanted to see what war was like, but I didn't go. Years later, of course, I realized how lucky I'd been. That child, he's in his 40s now with children of his own, reminds me from time to time about it. Whenever we get in an argument of some kind, he says, don't forget who kept you out of Vietnam. (laughs)
1: Which is perfect. I love it. Oh my god, John Irving's sons sound awesome. Yeah. (laughs) Estrange dads, this is what you're missing out on. You're missing out on cool sons. Yeah. Cool daughters.
0: And if you're like a son with an estranged dad, like we don't mean to make you feel bad. Like we're really just trying to put your estranged dads on blast.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't feel bad.
0: Okay. That's fine. I mean, like, you have more context for this than I do, so I'm. Like, yeah. I, don't, I don't call my dad as much as I should. But we're not like estranged.
1: No. I've. You guys have hung out. It's pretty cool. I was there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a weird sentence to say. I
0: was there with your dad while th- you guys were hanging out.
1: <laughs> what, what am I saying?
0: All right, you weirdo. Before we start talking about this book, I, think I do want to talk. Wait. 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 Oh, wait.
1: I want to talk right. about the Vietnam War for a quick second because we're okay. gonna come back to this when we talk about the rest of this book because it's a huge thread in this book. I cannot imagine and the book points this out like I don't know what it would be like to live in a world with the draft. That's just such a weird thing that well, compulsory like there's, there's, service?
0: Yeah, there there are two things. First, like we fight all of our wars with robots and stuff now. Yes. And then second, everything I don't like our entire government is paralyzed like it can't do what it's supposed to do because it's scared of how politically costly it will be. Mm-hmm. And the draft would be so politically costly that I don't think anybody would actually propose it no. in the current climate. No. So we have a few safeguards. First is robots, and then second <laughs> is is the PERMA campaign that Washington, D.C. is.
1: Yeah, well, and the the third, I suppose, is the PERMA military campaign that is... The The military-industrial complex, yeah, Where, like, when you never have to formally declare war, you never have to rally the troops. You just keep sending dudes places Mm -hmm. and ladies places and, Mm -hmm. like...
0: And robots.
1: And robots and lady robots. Please value
0: the contributions of our (laughs) robot service robots.
1: Yeah, and it's... I don't know. This book, there are parts of this book that feel, like, Way too resonant with with a lot of this stuff. Oh, yeah, that
0: was a a big deal. That was, I mean, I'm not going to say it's like, I don't know, like there there are moments in history like Pearl Harbor and 9-11 and that kind of stuff. I think most males of a certain age who were that age in like the early 60s, mid 60s, late 60s, whatever, all have a draft story either about how their number came up or how they missed it just barely, you know?
1: Yeah, certainly. And there's like the the you could be responsible for in a, in a direct way you are involved in your nation's military actions at the drop of a hat like that mm-hmm. is not the selective service thing exists but it it's not the same like it's you know i don't i don't i did not spend the last 10 years of my life wondering when my number wondering yeah caught. wondering
0: when the axe was gonna come down
1: yeah and what that would mean for the other goals i have in my life and how and that would like, oh, affect hey, you t- my life you know you can't
0: direct that show anymore you need to come and fight a war <laughs> yeah um... oh wait 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 we were we just we we're just looking at your paperwork and we were seeing what you were doing and contributing to society and we've decided that we have no use for you in the u.s <laughs> armed forces thank you
1: <laughs> thank you for your time thank you for your time uh thank you for your time. We're going to come back after this break. Andrew, I feel like we were kind of harsh on dads before. Only a strange dad. Uh, yeah, so I want to like I want to do something to celebrate dads and moms and guardians who are doing a good job. But I don't know like what where I should do it. Like I feel like I could get some cool stories together, like I could link to some resources, some games that people could play, right? Or like pictures of dads doing cool dad things, but like where could I put that?
0: I guess you could make an insane person's dad website <laughs> with, <laughs> with Squarespace.
1: Oh, oh really? What is Squarespace? Cuz I don't know how to make a website. I'm a little intimidated. <laughs>
0: Squarespace is a great service that will help you to build and host your own website, and you don't need to know how to code. You don't need a lot of technical experience or know-how. It's just a really easy, really great way to make a strange dad website. No, it's not, in no. minutes.
1: It's not for a strange dad's. It's for cool. No, dads. I, I'm
0: saying it's it's a strange <laughs> website. <laughs> but your weird, oh your weirdo dad website will look professionally designed, regardless of your personal skill level. Um, Squarespace comes with intuitive and easy-to-use tools, and uh, they have state-of-the-art technology powering your site to ensure security and stability, which are two things that you want from a dad. (laughs) And if you... If you
1: start <laughs> plans start at $8 a month, and if you sign up for a year, you get a free domain name. I just checked a com is available. So you could Can use you that. buy that right now and like uh, redirect it to overduepod.com? I, I will not, but, but uh, someone wanna, could. Someone could. Uh, they could do it if they started their free trial today. They would not need a credit card. They just need to head over to squarespace.com. Uh, and Andrew, if they sign up for Squarespace, when they decide to sign up, they can use the offer code overdue to get ten percent off their first purchase. sounds like a pretty good deal to me, even if you're a
0: deadbeat dad, you should
1: be able to afford that right
0: no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Dads across the world go to Squarespace. you should build a beautiful Build beautiful, it beautiful.
0: <laughs> yeah, in unison Um. So you mentioned to me before we started recording that you wanted to, because this is such a big book. It's not quite like it length, but it's definitely it's a big in. It's definitely complex. So you said you wanted to split it, split the show into a bunch of different parts, just to like make sure we were all on task the whole time. So like, how do you want to break this down?
1: I want to give you a quick lay of the land in terms of structure, mm-hmm. and then we can go through the plot as uh, as we need a synopsis, and then this is one of the. F- <sighs> One of the first books that I've read in a while, given what we've read that we've been reading lately, that has like overt themes and metaphors that are carefully crafted as such. Um, Okay. Like capital L literature, like beloved has some of that, but like part, I will confess that like, because that's from another walk of life uh, and set in a, you know, Further back in time, there was just an element of kind of like just wrapping my head around what was going on in
0: that book. And then it was like specifically not about metaphor,
1: no symbolism, (laughs) uh, as Stephen King made very clear precisely. And (laughs) this is like you can feel it, it is written in the tradition of the great American novel. Like, I don't, I it's been hailed as Irving's contribution to that genre, and it, it. functions as such as it is replete with um, very well-crafted imagery yeah. that repeats throughout the book.
0: Yeah, long book by a white guy
1: with lots of metaphors in it. Sounds like a great American novel. Sounds me. like, yeah, the book that your English teacher would thump down on your desk and make you read. And mm-hmm. I, I enjoyed it, um, but I could, I could feel it functioning in a familiar mode, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. So... The overall, like, macro view of this book is that John Wheelwright, who lives in New Hampshire in the middle of the 20th century, uh, now lives – well, he grew up there. He now lives in Canada in the 80s. Ew. I know. It's weird. (laughs) Uh, He is recently or later in his life a practicing Anglican. Um, faith factors heavily into this book, different types of religions factor heavily into this book, uh, and he is teaching English at a private private girls' school in Toronto. He's a virgin and a bachelor, um, and the book kind of oscillates between these kind of present day diary entries of him in Toronto uh, and in Canada, kind of complaining about current affairs and remembering his past and the past that he's remembering. And I found the past that he was remembering way more compelling than present day John Wheelwright.
0: Okay, great.
1: Uh, So I will kind of leave that part of the book alone for for this episode, except to say that maybe if I was like, Closer to John Irving's age, reading this book in the early 90s, and the complaints about the Reagan administration, like, spoke directly to me. You would maybe be into
0: it a little bit more? Like, how how much of it happens in the quote-unquote present, and how much happens in the past? Is it like a half-and-half half thing? No, is no. Is it a it's, thing where the present, present is used as a frame narrative less for than, the past?
1: Yeah, less than 30 or 20% is in the present, if, okay. if even that um so the big focus of the book is john growing up with his best friend owen Meany, and owen is like has has it always will be like a small person and not like i don't you know it, the book doesn't say that he has dwarfism or anything like that he's um, just on
0: the very short end yes. of, of yeah. whatever like conventional human
1: development is yes and his like skin is very pale almost to be translucent at times his family works in the gravesend that's the town uh like granite quarry so cool there's a there's like this sense that maybe all of that exposure to the dust as a baby like stunted his growth or something Uh, very
0: dickensian in here so far
1: yes And he also has what the book describes in the very first sentence, uh, a wrecked voice. I'm going to read the first sentence of the book to you. Okay. This is from John Wheelwright. I am doomed to remember a boy with a wrecked voice, not because of his voice or because he was the smallest person I ever knew or even because he was the instrument of my mother's death, but because he is the reason I believe in God. I am a Christian because of Owen Meany. And Irving... He was kind of burying the lead a little bit in there with the mom death, right? (laughs) Yeah, a little bit. (laughs) Irving says there's like an afterword where he talks about he wrote the end of the book first, and he always does that when he writes novels. And because of Owen's fascination with religion and with predestination and fate, it actually made it very easy to write this book that way. And he's... particularly proud of i would say in the afterword of this first sentence <laughs> in a way that kind of struck me as maybe a little arrogant but should he be fine. proud of it like hit me with it um what did he say i may one day write a better first sentence to a novel than that of a prayer for owen meanie but i doubt it i have a feeling for first sentences and i've written some pretty good ones <laughs>
0: Okay, like I, I have heard that reiterated by like writing professors and stuff is that your first sentence is is going to set I mean because it is the first sentence it sets the tone for the rest of the thing, but I had uh PF Kluga actually who's whose book um Eddie and the Cruisers I read for the show. Mm-hmm. He once explicitly told me that he could tell if an entire book was going to be good based on whether he liked the first sentence or not. That's so I, I guess some I people put more that. emphasis on those than others. Like I like a good first sentence, but
1: I think I like a good last sentence more.
0: Yeah, sometimes books just like end, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah, they do. They just kind of a big end. deal.
0: They just peter out. <laughs>
1: just turn the just last page. Oh, it's over. Yeah. And especially when you're reading on the Kindle, and it's like, would you like to rate this? Oh, you're like I didn't know this was over. That is a bad
0: <laughs> ending for this book.
1: <laughs> uh, the reason Irving likes this first sentence, and you said that he kind of buried the lead. Irving actually likes that it basically encapsulates the entire novel in a sentence Mm -hmm. it has every almost every major part of the book right there for you uh so john and owen are growing up in this small town and they become become friends as they're going through school and the major event that is alluded to is his mother's death so i'm not like spoiling anything it's obviously the first sentence of the book yeah right uh and this event plays out a couple of times over the course of the book, and this is how Irving likes to tackle events, and and the memory style allows him to do this. He can come back to this scene a couple times throughout the book. Uh, they're playing little league baseball. I think they're like ten or eleven. And the thing about Owen is he's so small that his strike zone is non-existent. Like you can't, you literally can't put the ball in the strike zone if you're like a 10-year-old pitcher cuz this kid is so tiny that everything's a ball. Yeah. So Owen's job was to get up there and walk all the time. And he was mm-hmm. super fast, so that worked out. That was great. Uh for whatever reason, John's mom and John's dad, he doesn't know who his father is at all. His wife, his mom had him out of wedlock um by a man that she met somewhere.
0: Okay, so there's there's some Autobiographical
1: stuff already. Yep. Uh, She comes to the game and she is like standing just off of third base wearing this like red dress and she is uh, like waving to someone in the stands. And over the course of the book, you get us, John gets the sense that she was waving to his father and he is trying, you know, throughout the book trying to remember who that might have been at the game because it gets burned into his memory uh two other kids as john is like repeatedly reminds you should have gotten out and should have ended the game but didn't so like that becomes part of their moniker anytime he encounters them throughout the rest of the book because they are now (laughs) implicated in his mother's death okay great right owen is told to swing away by the coach Uh, He's so small and so light and mostly pretty weak for his size that, like, to swing almost knocks him over at all. Mm -hmm. Like, there's no bat small enough for him to, like, comfortably swing without falling down. Right. He goes for it. He's ahead of the pitch, which means he pulls it foul. And the crack is, like, so loud that it pulls uh, John's mom's gaze towards home plate. And the ball hits her. And she's dead before she hits the ground. Jeez. Yeah. And this is, this ha- you finally get this event like a little ways into the book. You get a sense that uh, John is a popular enough kid, but he doesn't quite fit in with a lot of people. And Owen is really not popular when he's growing up because he's kind of like, everyone finds him weird. And when, when John Irving means wrecked voice, which I didn't really dwell on earlier, all of Owen's lines are written in caps. The best thing I can imagine for you Andrew is that he just speaks like Gilbert Gottfried all the time. Like
0: <laughs> Okay, I I'm done with that.
1: Um I don't I don't know that there's a better comparison um
0: if, if you happen to not know who we're talking about, like Iago the parrot from Aladdin, that's Gilbert Gottfried.
1: A person's faith goes at its own pace,
0: Owen Meany said. The Aflac duck before he got fired. The uh, trouble with church Gilbert is Godfrey. the
1: service. A service is conducted for a mass audience. These are things that Owen says he's complaining about church.
0: Okay. Um. So, all right. So Gilbert Gottfried kills our protagonist's mother mm-hmm. at a baseball game.
1: Now you might think that if uh, your 11 year old best friend killing your mom, like might ruin your friendship
0: forever. Yeah. Like I might be sore at that person for a little while. This yeah. A while.
1: Um, there's actually a really touching sequence where by this point, uh, John's mom has actually gotten married to the theater teacher at the local, like a like private high school, And he's, like, a really good father to John. And part of that, I think, is because he's not replacing anyone for John. Like, he just kind of, like, slides right in there as a nice guy, Mm -hmm. which is interesting. um, And kind of a unique relationship. They seem to meet each other a bit more as equals, which is kind of fun to see. Sure. Uh, And Dan guides John through this sequence where Owen gives John all his baseball cards that he prizes as like penance. And then John is supposed to give Owen something back. That's really important to him. And he gives him this like stuffed armadillo that Dan had given to him. So there's already, we get a sense that like these objects are very important to both of them. Different objects throughout the book are very important to them. And at this point in his life, Owen becomes convinced that he is an instrument of God
0: just because he killed somebody or what
1: you you later find out that he's predisposed to faith he finds certain dogmas troubling um because they don't allow him to you know interact with scripture or or hymns or god on his own terms right but he is also really seduced by the idea of fate and things having a purpose so when uh, when he strikes, you know, he wants to know why he's so small. He wants to know why his voice never changes. Like as he grows up, his he do- his voice doesn't drop. He's got this like he's still got the Gilbert Gottfried thing, hanging Gilbert out. falsetto thing going on that whenever anybody hears his voice, they like f- if they've never met him before, they like freak out because it's so bizarre. Right. So he thinks all of this has to have a purpose. And he's told that he might be an instrument of God. And so he kind of latches onto that. And he, the symbolism behind the armadillo is he like removes the claws and it's supposed to suggest that he is, his hands have been removed by God because he's not in control of his own destiny. He is, God is working through him in a really like, like directly biblical way. Uh, so he's that's comforting to him because theoretically he was supposed to do that for some reason. Uh John certainly does not see it that way, because <laughs> his mom was arbitrarily taken it taken from him. uh John also is like, "Why did my mom never tell me who my father was?" That seems like an arbitrary thing for him. Um, he does not have this like sense of purpose that Owen does. Mm-hmm. The other major plot point. In this section of the book, is the dual performances of Owen in the Christmas pageant and their town performance of A Christmas Carol. I don't know how much community theater you've seen, Andrew, in your lifetime. Like, some ever. And it does, it's
0: like, I don't know what your salient point is going to be, but it's often like, Intermittently talented, very enthusiastic local people, and it's all the same people in every production every time.
1: Yes, correct. <laughs> uh, what's, it's actually a really interesting writing device on Irving's part because it allows him to introduce all of these different characters from the town. Because everyone's trying out for the different parts in A Christmas Carol. And there are there's the couple that always likes to play against gender. And, like, it's the 1950s, so people don't know what so to do weird. with it. So that's weird. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh There's the mailman who gets cast as the Ghost of Christmas Yet to Come, but he's not good at it, and he doesn't think it's an important part. And somehow Owen Meany gets to play the Ghost of Christmas Yet to Come, but he's, like, 11, mm-hmm. and he's four feet tall. and appa- But he's the scariest thing ever. apparently Uh, and when people like see him in his black robe on the stage like one girl wets her pants and like people are screaming
0: well I can see like the sequence that you would do like as a writer like you'd, you'd explain the role that they were gonna get and then like using that to comment on some aspect of their personality and you just go down that until your entire cast has been introduced
1: yes it's actually it's really effective actually uh, and it reminds me, there are parts of it, parts of this earlier part of this book that remind me of something like *Mockingbird*, um, which has been on my mind lately, given Harper Lee's passing. But just right, yeah, like how you build a small community of people around a couple of major events. Yeah, you
0: kind of you kind of have to do it like an anecdote at a time, and then just trust the people have a good enough sense of your characters to like place them within the, like the big story that you're trying to tell. Yeah. Uh,
1: the big thing that comes out of the Christmas Carol thing, uh, is that Owen gets sick from kind of overworking himself in, while also being the baby Jesus in the nativity play, which does not go very well. At one point he gets an erection while he's in the swaddling clothes. It's really weird. Well, (laughs) that'll happen.
0: It is a sexy story.
1: (laughs) It is. He also starts yelling at his parents for being there, and everyone in the audience thinks that the baby Jesus is just yelling at them for coming. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Which is kind of great. So then he's, like, really run down as the ghost of Christmas yet to come. He passes out in the middle of the play, like, while he's guiding Scrooge to his grave. He wakes back up, looks at the grave, screams himself, which causes people to, like, flee the theater in terror. He has apparently seen his own name on the gravestone along with the day that he will die in the future.
0: What weird sitcom episode is it that you're describing to me right now? I am describing
1: (laughs) A Prayer for Owen Meany by John Irving.
0: Are you sure it's not an episode of Friends where like Ross is the ghost of Christmas yet to come and he passes out on stage and it's like everybody laughs? Maybe it's more of a Seinfeld. Like Kramer definitely would be like a... A good oh my Christmas God. Yet to come,
1: he'd be a real good Christmas yet to come. Because he like he'd have
0: a really good audition, and then he would totally ruin the production in some way once he was up on stage. He
1: would. I can see him in my mind tripping over the gravestone and like yes. knocking it over,
0: or even like his robe, and then tripping into the gravestone, and then like
1: falling off the stage, mm-hmm. and somehow ripping someone's pants off.
0: Or maybe he's like on ropes because he like floats in, <laughs> and that comes into play somehow. That feels Kramer. That
1: Michael Richards is such a gifted physical comedian. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what
0: a treasure! What a, except oh, for the racist stuff. Yeah. yeah except for what that a racist stuff. treasure. What a
1: racist national treasure. Um, there's room for human error. Not really. Um, the book kind of. I, I want to skip ahead towards the end of the book from here because the the middle passage is them in high school, and the biggest point that you get here is that Owens kind of single-mindedly pursuing some sort of fate that he's not letting John in on okay and John needs help in school he's not a very good student Owen's helping him out in exchange for that they are practicing this thing they call the shot now what sport they don't like baseball anymore because it killed John's mom what sport do you think it would be least likely for someone like Owen Meany to take an interest in
0: I mean probably basketball because he's a short o
1: yeah so they spend a lot of And also of time. you said
0: shot and like that's the Most
1: popular sport that you take shots in Yeah I kind of tipped my hand on that one Yeah good job I tipped the ball like in basketball mm-hmm. uh-huh. And then I got a three pointer on you Like
0: in basketball I took it to the paint and dunked it In the hoop and I got points Pick and roll Is that real? Yeah Okay <laughs> <laughs> what, what about this book? What about books? Uh,
1: they're practicing the shot, which is Owen wants to do a thing that's not even legal in a game of basketball where John throws him at the net effectively and mm-hmm. Owen slam dunks. And their goal is to get it as short as possible. Can they do it? For a long time, they're practicing to get it under four seconds. Eventually, they get it under three seconds. And all the time, John doesn't quite know why they're doing it, but Owen's insistent that it, they keep practicing and getting faster and faster. Okay. After they get through high school, there's like this whole section where Owen becomes like the most popular kid in high school because he's like a dissident voice in the student paper. Seems a little unlikely, but you know, whatever. <laughs> uh, and then we get into the Vietnam era. And because of the disgrace in high school, Owen, the only way he's going to get to college is to enlist in the army He wants to go to Vietnam very badly. And at this point, he is in some sort of relationship with John's cousin, Hester. We haven't really talked about John's cousins. That's a whole other part of the book. Uh, And John and Hester are trying to convince Owen not to go through with this. But Owen's been having this dream about when and how he will die. Okay, And it involves him seeing a bunch of Vietnamese children getting hurt Nun's looking over him and then he's dead. And John's there somehow. So like this is where the past of the novel starts to more explicitly intertwine with the present because all the criticisms about the Vietnam War and the, you know presidential policy and the disillusionment in the American president start to creep in. Yeah, right. Um and eventually the dream comes true but not in Vietnam in Arizona because they're a, like a plane of refugees comes in while Owen is he's doing that difficult job where you go and meet you like greet the families of uh men who've fallen in action yeah right and uh there's this like disillusioned kid in Arizona who tries to attack some army people and Owen ends up protecting these kids from, like, a handmade explosive, um, and that is, like, the realization of his destiny, that he's been, you know, hoping would happen. Uh, he ends up dying on the exact date that he would die and is, like, martyred in front of John, and this convinces John that all of Owen's faith was real and that he witnessed a real miracle. Jeez. um, but but Like a bad miracle? yeah. Because I mean,
0: his friend died?
1: Yeah, that part's not great, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but, and, and Irving says this in the afterword, like, what's interesting about a story that hinges on a miracle is it is from the first person, and Irving is careful to point out that, like, you can't tell that story objectively, or at least he did not want to tell a story about a miracle objectively. Like,
0: Well, I like I feel like if you're telling a story about a miracle right like y- you are running a high risk of losing your readers because you're like you're challenging their suspension of disbelief or whatever by just yes. like making something insane happen i guess like, if that makes sense
1: and so it's the book takes its time to develop these characters who would believably feel this way about what's happening whether or not that is actually what's happening okay like owen's the circumstances are certainly contrived Mm -hmm. (laughs) like the the way in which his dream is realized like he tries to get john out because he thinks it's going to be in vietnam so they actually like inflict a wound on john so that he is deferred from service right um which is interesting because up until that point, you actually think that John like maybe draft dodged up to Canada, yeah, because you don't really know how that happened. Uh, it turns out it's him and Owen, but like the way that that kind of comes full circle, it's funny that you brought up Seinfeld because there is an element of like the way that at the end of an episode, all the plot lines like intertwine in a really right, yeah, bizarre and I don't way. think like
0: I don't think Seinfeld like invented having no. plot lines intertwine, but. <laughs> But in the way it is a useful shorthand for like a certain type of storytelling.
1: Well, and we're in a way where the writer or the writers are like winking at the reader or the audience in a way that's like you know this is outlandish, right? Yeah. And that's the point. and that's
0: part of why it's funny slash effective slash
1: whatever. Yeah, certainly. Uh, so that's like a very. I know it took a while to get through that, but like that's not even half of what happens in the book. So. It's a big book, okay, um, I'll take your word for that <laughs> part uh again, like what I was saying is that it deals in literary devices more explicitly, I think, than any book I've read recently for the show or okay. th- even for pleasure, like the explicit theme of what faith is is so is really interwoven into the text, like we talk about very early on what it is to be. Congregationalist versus Episcopal versus Anglican versus Catholic. And like Owen has opinions on all of this because he's basically a baby adult from the very first page. (laughs) A baby adult who has very specific opinions about God. And there's interesting debate about like is faith doubt or is faith like blind adherence to dogma or is faith like this acceptance of some version of fate? So you've just kind of, like, resigned yourself to what the universe will give you. Yeah, Um, I
0: I think a lot of people, like, intermix these different things in in varying ratios to come to their own understanding of faith, you know?
1: Yeah, and there's a couple, like, there are different pastors in the book who represent those dichotomies. And I see Irving kind of tying this to... It sounds hokey, but, like, faith in America and faith Mm -hmm. in the idea of the ideals of your nation. Mm. Yeah, and especially if you're touching on Vietnam,
0: like, that was a very big faith-shaking moment in American history.
1: Yes, yes. And it starts with Kennedy in this book, too. Like, they spend some time talking about, like, Kennedy as a womanizer and Kennedy's relationship with Marilyn Monroe Like, there's a whole episode where Owen offends someone's mom because she's talking about, her son is talking about Kennedy having sex with Mary Monroe. And Owen takes such great offense to it that he, like, makes a crack about sleeping with that guy's mom to her face. (laughs) 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 Which is pretty good. Owen's awesome, by the way.
0: Yeah, you don't tell your mom jokes in front of your friend's mom. (laughs) That's like the first rule of your mom jokes.
1: I think what she says to him is, "Well, you wouldn't you have sex with Marilyn Monroe if she asked you to?" And he goes, "I don't know. She probably wouldn't ask me, but if you asked me to, I would." Ooh, which is like Ooh. you don't say that to someone's mom. Which is, which oh, is right? where this
0: turns into a softcore porn. I know.
1: It's pretty messed up. Um, the that kind of dovetails with idolatry in the book. Like much is made out of these different objects. Things I haven't talked about include, like, John's mom has this uh, sewing dummy, like, where she would bring dresses home from her, like, weekly trip to Boston, and instead of buying a dress, she would bring it home, copy it, and then, like, return it the next week. Okay. And Owen, like, prizes this dummy, and he ends up keeping it in his house after she passes. Uh, What's interesting about that is this metaphor of people not having arms or not having their hands because they are like instruments of God. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, the dummy does not have any arms later when Owen vandalizes a statue of Mary Magdalene, he cuts off her arms when he protects the Vietnamese children from this bomb. Like his arms are destroyed. Like Irving is not being subtle. With these images,
0: something about arms is what I I'm think picking there's up. Like some, I think something like arms somehow.
1: Some arms for Owen Meany is the other name of this book. Mm-hmm. Oh, armless Owen Meany. No arms for Owen Meany. No. <laughs> it's. N- I think Irvin gets away with it because the characters are so explicitly concerned with it. Like he's crafted a character in Owen. That is overtly concerned about fate, that is constantly talking about imagery and like almost shaping the world to this pre this idea of predestination okay. that you can buy it. And then it's and then it's also like a it's just a growing up book. I haven't read a good like buildings roman in a while where let's start in a simpler time and have you disillusioned by growing up and your parents aren't who they thought they were. And you learn about your other dad that you didn't know was your dad, and then you suffer hardship and your friend dies.
0: Yeah, and that's a very like specific kind of book. And it's it's fun sometimes, but it's not fun to have like a steady diet of it. <laughs>
1: no. Cause they start there are certain beats that you have to hit, right? There mm-hmm. are there are ways when I compared it to Mockingbird, like I think there's it's not concerned thematically at all with anything similar to Mockingbird, but In the way that
0: the loss of innocence is the thing. Yeah,
1: that's the and the the way that like as a kid they talk about certain adults in the book versus the latter chapters where John the adult is going back and visiting his hometown and hanging out with his stepdad Dan. That's 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 not a good
0: stepdad name.
1: Dan. Yeah. Yeah. He's Dan seems like a cool guy. He doesn't remarry or anything which seems a little sad but like cuz he does seem like such a nice guy. Mm-hmm. Um and all the other kind of side characters get pretty good arcs which is uh kind of speaks to Irving's I'd maybe I'd, I don't know if I want to use the word mastery but he is, certainly has an assured hand of how to like juggle all the different characters throughout this book like right yeah. John's grandmother hasn't really factored into my retelling but she has a whole arc without TV, becomes this dominant force in American culture. There are moments where they're like watching Kennedy shot over and over again as it gets replayed in the news. Yeah. Which, you know, we certainly have 9-11 and like, I can remember the high school classroom I was in when that happened. Yeah, definitely. And the high school classroom I was in later that day where we watched the footage again and again. Yep. So they talk about that. They talk about Bobby Kennedy. They talk about footage from Vietnam. So yeah, I think the the disillusionment in america and stuff is relevant to someone reading this book today i can't i i did not grow up in a like a house that went to church regularly so i can't really speak to that part of the book from personal experience i don't have that like inner wrestling with how i feel about dogma
0: well, I, there's, a, there's a very specific kind of church-going thing that I, like, even, like, our family did it regularly, but I don't know if my experience would be the same as, like, the, the experience as told by John Irving. Because I think, I'm not going to say my thing was, like, the universal thing, but I think a lot of kids who are our age, who were, like, brought to church by their parents but didn't have strong feelings about the, it themselves, they're, like... There are touchstones like, oh, if maybe if I lay in bed for long enough, I won't, I literally won't be able to get ready for church and they want to go so badly that they'll just end up leaving me home. Which I think only (laughs) works like once or twice ever in the history of our family going to church. But, you know, that was, those were a couple good times. Okay. Because those like two hours while they're, where they're gone, just like feel incredible.
1: Well... (laughs)
0: I'm really making, I, I don't know. I don't want to make any religious people in our listenership feel uncomfortable or something. That was, just, that was just my personal experience with it.
1: Well, and for me, I think there's something, Irving's touching on something in the American experience that I don't have personal access to, which is the like, okay, I was raised in this specific tradition and now I am embarking on my adult life where I have options and what do I do about that? Mm-hmm. Um I was mostly raised with, hey, we celebrate Christmas. Like, that's our thing. Right. Um, And so now it's interesting uh, meeting more people in my life who do have like a background in a tradition that they still continue to this day and like wrestling that with my own inexperience with that. Right.
0: Yeah. What's the last like big thing that we need to talk about about this book? Like, why is this book canonized the way it is?
1: Okay. I was going to give you a struck-me-funny about how the word doink is used 16 times in this book for penis, but we can talk about why this book is remembered and canonized. Yeah,
0: I mean, I think that that, that can just be the struck-me-funny, is <laughs> that they use the word doink 16 times in he, place of penis.
1: He even uses it when he's an adult talking about doinks.
0: I mean, we may end up using
1: it now. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty good word. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it has... Been canonized for speaking to a generation that is exactly John Irving's age. Um, in that, like, it was published what in like '91 or '89, maybe. Um, let me get that right '89, yeah. I think the paperback yeah. might have been '91. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've got this generation that went through Vietnam after the Great War. And it's the first major American war where, like, part of the narrative was we did a bad job and on home soil we were talking about how bad of a job we were doing. Right. And that has set the blueprint for a generation or four of how we feel about the nation that we live in. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that we've quite – not that there's, like, a way to solve that. But I, I think it's responding to to a rudderlessness of an age bracket uh, and what it would be for that for someone like that someone like a John Wheelwright to run up against an Owen Meany who is so sure that he was put on this earth for a reason to do a thing even if it's just to save ten children at an airport in Arizona that that is why the universe made him the way he was and put him where it put him. Mm-hmm. Um Because I think Irving is writing at a time when the nation does not feel like that purpose is, like, around for anyone. Mm-hmm. I don't have like things for you to respond to directly, but that's no, my, no, That's I my just, little book report on this book that we yeah, just that's, read. Yeah, that's
0: that's what I that's what I wanted. Is we just like talked about a lot of things that have happened, and it does sound like it's grappling with interesting questions about like national identity and and personal your personal relationship to like these big institutions and
1: yeah, I don't know. If we had like three more hours, I'd tell you about some of the cool hijinks that happened. But like, yo, there's hijinks in this book. Is fun. Owen gets like stuffed under a couch and they like talk
0: more about hijinks
1: because that's not what the book's ultimately about. Like it's not, it's not hijinks for Owen Meany. It's a prayer for Owen Meany. Mm -hmm. Whatever. I'm just saying maybe like reconsider, maybe when John Irving goes back to rewrite
0: this, because that's what people do is they like go back and they do like a second (laughs) edition of their novel with a bunch of the stuff changed when he does that for this, like maybe he should consider making it more about hijinks. He more might. hijinks. More Just hijinks. Right in the margins. Dear John Irving, more hijinks? Question mark?
1: If you have already written an email to John Irving asking for more hijinks and you want to let us know how that went and you wanted to forward it to forward his response to us, you could forward it to overduepod at gmail.com. If you wanted to take a screenshot of his response to you and like tweet it or Facebook it to us, you could do that, as Andrew said, at overduepod.com. Uh, I want to give a quick shout-out to whole score people. You're making it tough. There's a lot of you. This is a good problem to have.
0: Is it like a score, or is it more than a score? It's not four score. Score is 20. I think it's 20. All right. Let's, I'll count.
1: Albie, Anna, Susan, Erica, Teresa, Adam, Michael, Lena, Philip. who's going through the back catalog, Mike, Lindsay, the Bulls Signals Podcast, Bunbury, my mom, Rebecca, our friends at Appointment Television, Catherine and Margaret. Our friends at Two Bossy Dames, Margaret, Don't Count her Twice, and Sophie. Uh, Karen, who gave Andrew a clown. Graham. And our email friends, Rebecca, Jane, Melissa, Mona, Halen, and Lynn.
0: I think I have 26. Woo! Six But and you confuse me a little bit by counting, like, institutions as people. <laughs> six and 20 score. Andrew. No, if... it's not six and 20 score. It's just... It's one score and six if four score 20 people score wanted is to 20 check times 20
1: our website what would they type into their oh internet God. browser they would
0: go to overduepodcast.com i guess and up there they would find links to itunes and rss and our stitcher feed uh those are all things you can use to subscribe to the show and get new episodes when they drop every monday and then also bonus episodes we're gonna have one of those go out for patrons this week and then for the rest of the week after that Um, We also have links to HeadGum, our podcast network, Spreaker, our podcast host. We have links to um, Amazon where you can buy the books that we're reading and support the show that way. We have a link to our Patreon page. That's also at Patreon.com slash OverduePod where you can support the show. And um, if you pledge $5 or more, you get to tell us a book that you want us to bump up to the top of our list. Um, That's why we read Owen Meany. That's why we read It last week. Like many, many, many of the books that we've read over the last year were given to us by patrons so thank you guys so much for continuing to support us and it it just really means a lot to us and to our like wallets because (laughs) doing the show as a labor of love was fun and i do love it but it's also nice to do it as a labor of
1: money (laughs) yeah i want to thank donna for recommending a prayer for owen meanie we wouldn't have read it without you donna thanks
0: um is there anything else that we need to hit
1: what are you reading next, Andrew? Uh,
0: Disgruntled by Asali Solomon. This was—it's a pretty recent book. It was published last year, I think, or maybe 2014. It'll be—it'll it, be interesting. I'm looking forward to to finishing it and talking about it. Cool. Uh,
1: that's it. Thanks okay. for helping me out this week, Andrew.
0: Yeah, no problem. Thanks for helping me out. Uh, all right, everybody, and thanks for helping us out by listening. Until next week, try to be happy.
1: That was a headgum podcast. This is a rambunctious show. I could feel it. hmm Oh god, I smell like hops. Oh, it's all <laughs> in my body. <laughs> Used, you brewed beer today right we used for your wedding four different kinds of hops and you smell it's, like it's all four of them all in me i had to go teach like i had a beer at noon just to be sporting and then i had to teach <laughs> at like 7 so like i'm fair i told my students straight up i was like listen i am completely sober i smell like i've been drinking i know i day.
0: smell like your strange dad <laughs> but
1: please ignore that Crazy!
0: <laughs> oh, I thought we were doing the show, and then you cussed.
1: No, I'm, we're gonna put this at the we can end. We put
0: that at the end. Okay, yeah. great. <laughs>